Support for Start Making Sense comes from HBO. Don't miss the new season of Real Time with Bill Maher, the long-running, Emmy-nominated talk show covering the week's news and featuring a panel of guests, including actors, activists, politicians, musicians, comedians, and more. Bill Maher's sharp, witty, and unpredictable show is a mainstay for current events, politics, and media. Catch his comedic monologue, his weekly special guests, and his rotating panelists live every Friday beginning January 19th at 10 p.m. Only on HBO. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. This week marks the first anniversary of the day Trump took the oath of office as President of the United States. The nation is observing the anniversary with a special issue, The Resistance Turns One. Saying no to Trump was just the beginning. Later in the show, we'll have an update from Bob Dreyfus on the latest in the Trump-Russia investigations and Republican efforts to stop them. And David Bromwich will talk about Donald Trump's ruling passions. But we start today with Katha Pollitt on the Year for Women. Of course, she's a poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. Her latest book is Pro-Reclaiming Abortion Rights. It's out now in paperback. Katha, welcome back. Oh, hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, you give Donald Trump credit in your new column for at least one good thing, bringing feminism back. Let's talk about how that happened. I think the election of the pussy grabber, scam artist, ignoramus, vulgarian, who had no government experience, who ran on locked her up, uh, and won the White House against a very qualified woman um, who happened to be sane, <laughs> um, and who, adding insult to injury, got more votes. I think all of that has enraged women. I think it has enraged women whether or not they voted for Hillary. And even if they don't realize that's why they're enraged, it is. And, I mean, the, the insult to women in that campaign, which was so misogynist with Hillary sucks but not, not like Monica T-shirts and others too disgusting to describe on family radio, <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, I think that just really made women sit up and take notice. Just one footnote here. I looked up to that T-shirt, Hillary sucks, but not like Monica. It is still for sale on Amazon. $18.99. And then, you know, they have comments from buyers. And one buyer wrote, quote, smelled bad when I first got it. It's quite low quality, close quote. <laughs> Quite low quality, quality indeed. Well, your birthday's coming up, so now I know. Now I know what to get you. Well, it did seem during the campaign like all the hard work that women have done over the last, what, 20 or 30 years was finally going to result in our first woman president. And indeed, a lot of good things did happen over the last 20 or 30 years. Yes. Um, and, you know, it's not that she was so... That she was a woman, you know, everybody says, oh, you're voting with your vagina. But it isn't, that's not what it's about. Hillary Clinton was pro-choice. She favored getting rid of the Hyde Amendment. She uh, was going to make half her cabinet female. She would have been, her, her appointments would have been a feminist. It would have been really good. I think people did see, okay, now finally we're getting some real traction here. 
And then it didn't happen. In fact, the opposite happened. And now we find Trump nominating, I mean, almost all his appointments are, are white men unless they're insane religious fanatics. Then that, that's when women and black people get to get the jobs. But um, I think it was it was really shocking. I think people realize, you know, history doesn't always move forward in a straight line. Well, it's also the anniversary coming up uh, of the Women's March. Do you remember the male pundits who said calling it the Women's March was a mistake because that would discourage men from attending? Yes, Jonathan Shade um, said that of uh, New York Magazine, I believe, and uh, he got teased about that a lot. And it's really funny that it's sort of like the word woman sort of means no men, (laughs) Uh, uh, whereas men can mean people, depending. Um, And of course, men were invited and many men showed up. But I think it was very important that there be a statement about female leadership, that you know, enough, enough is enough. Let us be in charge here because we are the people who are particularly um, going to be affected by this. And that's, that's the truth. That's what's happened. So I think, I think women's leadership of a left-leaning organization is a very good thing. And let's not forget that the Women's March was not just in Washington, D.C. It was everywhere. Remember, all over the country, people went to this website and registered that they were organizing marches, and there was this map covered with hundreds hundreds and hundreds of dots. Uh, you know, in my uh, hometown of St. Paul, thousands of people marched in bitter cold. We record in L.A., who I think was the largest demonstration in the history of Los Angeles. And my favorite story, there was a tiny town in northern Minnesota where one woman posted that she was planning to march, but she couldn't find anybody to join her, so she said she would do it alone. This was a retired librarian in Longville, Minnesota, and then 66 people came from all the tiny nearby towns of northern Minnesota, and they all marched together against Trump in Longville, Minnesota. Yeah, I think, you know, people were surprised that there is so much There is so much feminism, so much liberal, left, whatever you want to call it, politics, Democrat, because we have this narrative that these politics are unsuccessful, especially in the red states. But that's not true. I mean, Hillary did get more more votes, and Bernie got a lot of votes, too. I think we have to fight the idea that everybody is such a huge reactionary. I mean, look, Doug Jones won. In Alabama. That's an amazing statement. So we have a Democrat winning the Senate seat occupied previously by Jeff Sessions. First time a Democrat was elected in more than 30 years, defeated an accused sexual predator, Roy Moore. Uh, You had a fabulous line about that in your column. What was that line? I said, mothers don't look kindly on molesters of teenage girls. Who knew? (laughs) That's great. So uh, I, I've heard that women have been more engaged in the last year, not just in marching, not just in Alabama, but in electoral politics in other states. Is this true? Yeah. You know, it's real. There are tons of women who are running for office from the very most local to governor of the state. There's more governor, women running for governor than, governor than ever before. Um, unfortunately, some of them are Republican, but you can't have everything <laughs> And I think it was such a huge wake-up call. I say it's the 
This was the biggest wake-up call since alarm clocks were invented. <laughs> this is what happens when, when you just, throw, you know, we have this idea. It's like the, that arc of justice bending toward justice, and it's as if there's something inevitable about things becoming more egalitarian, more fair, more, more just. It's not true. Things can go the other way. And if you, let, if you don't just keep on top of things every minute, that's what happens. Things go backwards. Well, speaking of women in electoral politics, uh, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul. You know, the big question is which Republican will run for the Senate seat that Al Franken resigned in the special election next November. The Democrats have Mm -hmm. a newly appointed incumbent, the woman, former lieutenant governor named Tina Smith. The big news on the Republican side is that Michelle Bachman, the former presidential candidate from suburban Minneapolis, said a couple of weeks ago that she has asked God whether he wants her to run for Al Franken's Senate seat. Uh, It's been a couple of weeks now. What do you think God will tell her? Well, doesn't she have to ask her husband? (laughs) (laughs) Excellent point. Uh, Well, I guess we'll we'll have to get uh, uh, get back to you on that one. And there was Virginia. Let's not forget about Virginia. Virginia voters uh, nearly did the unthinkable. You want to remind us what happened in Virginia since uh, yeah, the last Yeah, well, this, this was amazing. Not only did the Democrat win the governorship, so I, I believe that uh, all the statewide offices in Virginia are occupied by Democrats now. But in the elections for the House of Delegates, which is the lower um, house of the state legislature, Democrats came so close to to tying back from when they were very much in the minority before. And if it weren't for gerrymandering, they would have won because they got 55% of the votes, but they don't get even 50% of the seats. And the end of it was, you know, this famous pulling a name out of a film, out of film canisters to decide who would, who would, be seated in an election that came down to a single vote. So your vote matters. Don't let anyone tell you that it doesn't. But, you know, but that shows you how grassroots energy, especially from women who are very plugged into their communities, can, uh, can make a difference that is just incredible. And it's not, you know, there are all these wonderful groups now, Swing Left, Sister District, just a whole bunch of groups that are dedicated to defeating Republicans. I guess at this point, I need to bring up the fact that 53% of white women voted for Trump. I think you are aware of this. They did not vote for the most qualified person ever to run for for president. Uh, So what is to be done about that? How much political energy should we devote to trying to show white working class people, especially women, the the Trump base voters that he's actually hurting them and their families should that be our focus winning back Trump's supporters especially the women well here i depart from some of my fellow nation writers in thinking no i don't think we should i think we should be devoting ourselves to registering and bringing out the the voters who already agree with us who are Numerous, very poor women and and men, of course, uh, people of color. I think that uh, to persuade a Trump voter 
who is not persuaded by simply life, what is happening, I mean, because he is losing support, is a monumental task. These people are embedded in communities where everything, sexism, racism, Jesus, uh, their families, are all pushing them toward Trumpism. And I think that it's, it's really very hard to dissuade, to, to dissuade people. I think we have to give them the same respect we give ourselves, which is we believe what we believe because we think it's right. And we believe what we believe partly for tribal reasons, too. And the idea that uh, if, if we could only just craft the perfect, humble message uh, that didn't sound like we were urban feminists, they would think, oh, well, you've got a point. Okay. <laughs> I don't think that's the way it works. Katha Pollitt, her new column in The Nation for the one-year anniversary of The Resistance is titled, We Are Living Through the Moment When Women Unleash Decades of Pent-Up Anger. You can read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Katha. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure. Now it's time for more on the Trump front. To talk about Donald Trump's ruling passions, we turn to David Bromwich. He teaches English at Yale. He writes about politics mostly for the London Review of Books and the New York Review. And his most recent book is The Intellectual Life of Edmund Burke. David Bromwich, welcome to the program. Good to be here. Well, you open your new piece for The Nation saying... Nothing new and useful can be said about Donald Trump, close quote. That's certainly a bold move. What did we know about Trump before the election? When did we know it? Well, I think people who had been reading about Trump uh, as a millionaire real estate magnate, as a playboy who liked to be in the pages of tabloids, as a you know reality television show host, and as a uh, you know leader of the birther movement, uh, social media uh, and uh, talk radio end of that against Obama, knew that he was a, a dabbler in uh, right wing populist politics recently, you know over the last uh, roughly uh, eight or nine years, and that before that he'd simply been a very rich man who had exploited all opportunities to make money in real estate, had gone bankrupt and had a reputation for corruption uh, equaled by almost nobody as famous in that business. So what I start off saying in the piece for the nation is that it's his fame as a corrupt businessman uh, that seems most important. And then his, uh, uh, his record at the medium short record as a political opportunist. The new things, I suppose, that I have in mind that people are wanting to hear about him is that he is a deep-dyed ideologist of some sort, or that he has a plan for reform of the world system, uh, or that he's trying to build up a uh, para-fascist organization within the United States, none of which is out of the realm of possibility, but none of which I think accurately describes what we know, and what we know is bad enough, uh, and it should be bad enough to uh, run an opposition against. You also say Trump's presidency is one continuous train wreck but his main goal has been accomplished. What do you have in mind here? Well, that refers to the ruling passions uh, that I speak of, the passion for money, for the acquisition of money, uh, and the passion for publicity. He 
acquires more and more money if he can. He uses corrupt means to do so. He protects the corruption by demands for loyalty. And he loves, he craves, I think that's a verb that comes back again and again in many uh, people's descriptions of uh, Trump. He craves attention. The tweets and the concern with his Twitter following and the size of his audience at any given venue are part of that. It's not too much to say obsession with uh, publicity. All politicians, almost all, are preoccupied with questions about their popularity. Uh, Obama was too, for sure. But Trump, in in this need for constant attention and constant affirmation of the attention being paid to him, he's very much an outlier, very much an aberration. And you also have a wonderful quote from 25 years ago when Wayne Barrett, then of the Village Voice, wrote in his book about Trump that Trump was, quote, a wounded monster. Is there any reason to revise that view from 25 years ago? There's no reason. To my knowledge, that was a paraphrase, but that's the picture of Trump. It's also the picture you get in David K. Johnston's book on Trump and, uh, you know, very likely in others like Tim O'Brien's that I have not read. You also wrote in The Nation, I quote, the idea that Trump is essentially a racist, essentially a fascist, essentially a misogynist dies hard. I think a lot of our listeners would would, uh, challenge you on that. So please explain. Right. Well, misogynist is a sort of fancy Greek and Latinate word uh, for sexist, uh, I guess, for complicated reasons that have to do with academic politics. We don't use sexist anymore. Misogyny refers specifically to a hatred uh, of women, even to the point of a desire consistently to cause them pain. I think Trump is averse to women. Uh, He has the standard, you know, uh, person who can take advantage uh, attitude towards women in the very loose sense that used to be employed. He is a sexist. I don't think he much likes the company of women. I think initially it must have been shyness uh, that could describe it. Now it's uh, something much worse given his financial resources. But he doesn't much like men either. It's quite clear. So um, that, I mean, I had that sort of thing in mind. Fascist, let's leave to the side unless you want to pursue it. It becomes such an all-purpose word in American politics. It's hard to get a clear definition. But as to to racist, I felt a bit self-conscious about that disownment uh, after he said the most clearly racist thing he has said in his recorded career just over the last few days uh, between when that article was in proof <laughs> and when it appeared, the lines about Haiti and the lines about shithole countries in Africa that we shouldn't have people from. Yeah, I think Trump thinks that blacks are inferior to whites generally. He has you know, some uh, African-American friends like Don King and others. He's not uh, averse to their company any more than he is to the company of women uh, when they're uh, on his side, more or less. I think he believes poor people are losers and a disproportionate number of black people are poor people and therefore losers. And he has a the most ungenerous kind of contempt for losers. Uh, that's been part of, uh, of the Republican Party syndrome in this country for 40, 50 years, if not longer. 
goes back to their resistance to the New Deal, you could even say. But Trump has it in a particularly virulent form. And I think I, I would tend to see his racism as coming under that heading. But yes, in some in some very general sense, um, yeah, sure. If you can say, is this person a racist and half race prejudice, or is this person completely clear of that prejudice? Yeah, Trump comes on the racist side. But I don't think there's any percentage in trying to make a politics out of it. Again, it's just obvious. It's just what people could know quite some time ago from his uh, record of uh, uh, trying various deceptive uh, means for excluding uh, African-Americans from his rentals in New York. And that yeah. goes back to the 70s. He paid a settlement to the government for that, to HUD and its lawyers. But, uh, the, you know, there was, a, there was a, a gag that followed the terms of the settlement, something Trump has been very clever to raging up and down his career. He pays a lot out in settlements, uh, but he also buys the silence of his opponents. Just a couple of days ago, Trump said, quote, I'm not a racist. I couldn't help being an old white man myself, remembering I'm not a crook. It's the kind of denial that, that kind of suggests yes. the truth of what's being denied. Yes. Well, he is crazy. I'm using that old-fashioned word instead of pretending to analyze him from hundreds of miles away, as some people are misguidedly doing. He is, he's crazy in, the, in, in our oldest, commonest use of that term. Uh, an ordinary, a sane person doesn't say, I am a genius, and then say, I am a stable genius. That's just crazy. <laughs> yeah, you, don't, yeah. you don't do any of those things. And the comparison to Nixon interests me. Um, because when we saw, uh, as we can't help having seen in recent days, you know, the endless quotation and requotation and requotation on CNN and elsewhere of his lines about those African countries, this was the sort of thing Nixon was capable of saying, especially in his uh, later years in office, in the second term especially, and did say. But Nixon said it, we only know now, confidentially, on tape. He didn't know that yes. tapes would get out to public view. And he said it in one-on-one -on -one meetings with people like Haldeman and Ehrlichman, people who were his assistants, or if you prefer, flunkies. Kissinger acted the part of, you know, benignly auditing flunky on some occasions and even didn't discourage Nixon's remarks about Jews. So Nixon was capable of talking that way, but never, even at his most unraveling, would Nixon have said it in a bipartisan, you know, important legislatively organizing meeting where he's, you know, with Democrats, with Republicans, and he knows, you know, from the pattern that this meeting is going to be publicized, that it is, in fact, a semi-public gathering. To say it in that company that freely, it's just a, betrays a complete lack of the capacity for self-censorship. I can only sigh in agreement. <clears throat> You're sighing at the, yeah, there really is nothing new. <laughs> In the LRB, you had a great argument recently. You wrote, Trump is the name of a cause and not just a person, and you can only fight him with another cause, close quote. Any suggestions? How about Medicare for all or tax the rich or free college tuition or a $15 minimum wage? I think you see where I'm coming from here. 
Yeah, uh, well, you're coming from roughly the Bernie Sanders corner of the Democratic Party, which uh, as a financial contributor to his campaign and an admirer of him for his integrity, you know, I'm I'm there too. Um, That's a miscellaneous set of positions, positions that you know, let's say are identified with left-wing social democracy. And I think that the Sanders campaign and the misleading populist elements of the Trump campaign proved that there's much more of an open hearing available to those opinions than uh, most of the mainstream media and the, you know, central parts of both parties had acknowledged. But I don't think it amounts to a cause. The, the cause of, of Donald Trump is rooted in resentment, uh, resentment of the displacement of American workers by, it is thought, rightly or wrongly, immigrants, mostly south of the border, fear of terrorism, which Bush and Cheney played up enormously and which Obama did lamentably little to calm down in the eight years given to him to change our state of mind about that. Trump plays on that. And then there is also just the general, you know, encroaching feeling of almost despair about the future of jobs in this country. Those were all topics with the exception of immigration. Those were topics that Trump and Sanders oddly had in common. The grounds of comparison for them in places like the New York Times and Washington Post were, oh, they're both shouters. Oh, they both are, they gesticulate and they appeal to the irrational. Oh, how about looking at the actual politics? Since Sanders is a person of high IQ and, you know, estimable grasp of the issues he talks about, you know, Sanders was able to work out positions on this in clear paragraphs. He's a good speaker. Trump is not. Trump just works up emotions. He's a very effective, simple minded demagogue whom people uh, can go to for the kind of simple solution that there's always a large audience for. But those are the kind of issues I think Democrats, uh, if they want to be an honest opposition and not a pretend resistance, whatever resistance means, and I regret the nation giving that whole series of articles the title of resistance, because resistance implies any kind of resistance. It implies we're an occupied country. We aren't that, not yet, not by a long shot. Who knows what it implies? Opposition is standing in the way of wrong policies that threaten the well-being of the people as you see it. And I think the Democrats should be much more than they are an anti-war party. Get us out of these wars five, 6,000 miles away against enemies we only create more of by occupying more countries or funneling troops to counter terrorists who fight against them. And um, get us concentrated on rebuilding the infrastructure, things like that, which actually Trump mentioned. Uh, mentioned frequently and has done nothing about another illustration of his opportunism. I think uh, with what's been happening around Santa Barbara and Houston and Puerto Rico and many other places, climate change is coming in on us. It can't escape people's consciousness. And it should be the the, uh, duty of a responsible party to keep it in people's minds day after day. Don't worry about what Trump said on his tweet or how racist he was yesterday or the day before. Remind people that the planet is disintegrating and that Americans have it a little in our power to retard that horrible development. As to immigration, I think the Democrats have given up thinking about it. Uh, The Republican solutions are completely driven by xenophobia, but what they are is just 
is just protective and prophylactic. There's no thought that's gone into them. But the Democrats seem to think any amount of immigration, probably pretty good because we are a nation of immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I, I don't think they've looked hard at that issue, and I don't think they've taken a very clear stand except to protect people against Trump's deportations. That merely negative position on immigration um, is an example of, I think, real uh, danger of thoughtlessness in the opposition party. Why? Because it's looking, it's looking to depose him by something that will come up in the Russia investigations <laughs> by a picked group of psychoanalysts who will decide he comes under a medical description. There's a lot of fantasy on the Democratic side, not insanity, but shortcuts that don't make any sense. David Bromwich, he wrote about Donald Trump's ruling passions for the new issue of The Nation magazine. Thank you, David. Thanks a lot. Now it's time for our update on the Trump-Russia investigations. For that, of course, we turn to Bob Dreyfus. He's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and also a regular contributor to Rolling Stone. He's also written for Mother Jones, The New Republic, Slate, and Salon. Bob, welcome back. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, we're recording this on Tuesday. The news today is that Steve Bannon testified before the House Intel Committee behind closed doors. Do we know anything about that testimony at this point? Well, not yet. We we could only speculate. He he's um he's not only testifying uh in front of the congressional committee, but he also uh, reportedly got a subpoena today according to the New York Times to speak to Robert Mueller, uh in which case he has gone out and got himself uh, a lawyer. He he's famously claimed for months that he'd talk to anybody who didn't need a lawyer. Um, he said he had nothing to do with Russia. That was all somebody else. And and in that latest revelatory book by Michael Wolff, Fire and Fury, he he goes on at length uh, saying that Mueller's investigation will be devastating to the administration and to Jared Kushner in particular. But I think Bannon has a lot to contribute, not only in terms of what he observed during the campaign and then during the administration, but um, possibly questions about his own involvement as well. So um, it's it's a major step for the uh, investigation. As far as I know, it's the first time uh, anybody from the Trump administration has been subpoenaed as opposed to voluntarily submitting to investigation. And maybe they're doing that in order to provide Bannon some cover, you know, so he can say, look, I, I had to do this because, you know, they they issued me a subpoena. But we'll see. It should be very interesting. Well, there's, there's at least one part of this story that we don't have to speculate about. Uh, on January 9th, Senator Dianne Feinstein defied the Republicans on the Senate Intel Committee and released the transcript of that previously secret testimony of a Glenn Simpson, he's one of the co-founders of Fusion GPS, the group that assembled the famous Trump-Russia dossier. You have read the 312 pages of Glenn Simpson's testimony that lasted for 10 hours that the Republicans did not want us to see. Tell us about it. Yeah, uh, it was the Judiciary Committee, by the way, the Senate Judiciary Committee, not the Intelligence Committee. 
it's part of an effort, I think, by the Democrats to fight back a little bit because Chairman Grassley, who's the chairman of that committee, had just one day before said, no, no, we're not going to release this testimony. And then Feinstein went ahead and did exactly that. You may recall that that Glenn Simpson himself, the founder of Fusion GPS, had asked for the testimony to be released. He wanted it to get out there so people could get a sense of you know, what went into putting that together and why it shouldn't just be routinely dismissed or, or condemned. And before we get into the content of it, you should, should know that Fusion GPS has been under tremendous assault by the Republicans who've kind of taken up the president's cause by trying to discredit or undermine uh, not only the, the contents of what this dossier says, but also it, its provenance, where it came from, why it, you know, they, they've, they've blamed the Democrats for being behind it. They've, they've accused the FBI of, of somehow being behind it. Uh, they've, there've been both political attacks and, and, uh, legal attacks. Um, two senators, Chuck Grassley and Lindsey Graham even filed a, a criminal referral to the Justice Department asking that Steele be prosecuted for, for lying. So, so there, this has become a, a political football, and that's why Simpson, the founder of, of the company, wanted this to be, to be released. And so, and so it it's, should be pointed out that this testimony happened months ago, in August of 2017. It isn't new testimony. It's part of the ongoing investigations by at least three congressional committees, including the Senate Judiciary Committee, to you know look into Russiagate. Let me just interject that the we're talking here, the dossier itself was released almost exactly a year ago this week by by BuzzFeed, and the Republicans have been attacking it ever since. So now this testimony was about how the dossier was assembled and answering the questions about its creation, its provenance, and its significance. Yeah, exactly. And, and so one of the things we get from the reading through this, this testimony is that Simpson considered Christopher Steele to be a very respected and reliable researcher. He he pointed out that he was the lead Russia specialist for the British intelligence service, MI6, which is no small thing. And he handled some major defectors. He was a senior official there for years. He's also somebody, Simpson pointed out, that he has worked with since 2009. So he'd already worked with Christopher Steele, this former British spy, for seven years before he was brought into the, the Russia uh, investigation on, on Trump. That, I think, works to undermine the idea that, oh, this was some slapdash thing put together. Why should we believe it? Why should we pay any attention to it? It was, it was put together by a very senior intelligence official who had very good sources inside Russia and inside the Russia world of exiles and businessmen and wheeler dealers and so forth. So that's, that's one part of it. The second interesting thing we, we learned from this is that the 
Fusion GPS effort to investigate Trump started more than a year in mid-2015, more than a year before the election. It was started by Republicans, which hired the firm to look into Donald Trump as opposition research, not about Russia, but about everything, about all of Trump's business dealings, his past, you know, just the way you do any kind of due diligence about a, a candidate. And when that effort began to end in mid-2016, when Trump locked up the nomination, the Republicans obviously didn't want to do any more opposition research on him. Then it was picked up by the Democrats. It was not an investigation of Trump-Russia. It was an investigation that included all sorts of aspects of, of Trump his business dealings in many different countries around the world, his work in Atlantic City. his So this was a comprehensive effort to look at the presidential candidacy of Trump and, and who he was, who was this guy running for office. And that's why the Democrats were interested. The third thing we learned that's interesting is that Steele, as he began to look at the Russia part of it, that was his bailiwick. They hired him to look at the Trump-Russia segment of this he began to become concerned that some crimes had been committed, namely the hacking of the DNC by the Russians. And his information was that there may have been contacts between various Trump officials and various Russians that may have encouraged or cooperated or somehow supported this Russian effort. So he voluntarily went to the FBI and met with them, I believe, both in July and in October, and told them what he was learning because he felt, as a former intelligence officer, he could not just keep this in the realm of private intelligence. He wanted to share it with the FBI. And what he learned is that the FBI was already hearing these things. So the charge from the Republicans that the FBI started its investigation of Trump-Russia because of the dossier is just wrong. They had already been looking at it. They were hearing from British and Dutch and Australian intelligence services who were telling the CIA and the FBI about possible Trump-Russia connections before Christopher Steele and, and Simpson's fusion company approached the FBI at all. What about the idea that Christopher Steele was in league with the FBI in assembling his dossier? The idea that they were in league with the FBI is, is silly because um, at a certain point, especially when Comey came out in that pre-election announcement and reopened the Clinton email story, and the New York Times ran a, a very strange article on Halloween of of 2016, saying that the FBI had concluded that there were no Trump-Russia connections to worry about, Steele started worrying that the FBI was playing for the other side, that they were cooperating with Trump. Why else would Comey be coming out with this stuff? So he said, we better stop talking to the FBI. We're, they were worried that they were then, you know, essentially giving Trump information to the Trump people, and they cut off connections with the FBI. Why is that important? Because it means that they weren't in the FBI's pocket. They weren't working 
on behalf of the FBI. They clearly were not being paid by the FBI. That was a, a Republican charge that Simpson denied, and I'm sure you know the, the the records will support that. This was an independent effort, not an FBI scheme to undermine Trump. There was no deep state conspiracy here. Some of the eye-popping revelations in the Trump-Russia dossier, the subject of Bob Dreyfus's latest report in The Nation magazine. Bob, thanks so much. It's always great to have you on the show. Thanks. My pleasure, John. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week with Dave, it's your Minnesota moment. Dave talks about the fight against Super Bowl priorities in Minneapolis and St. Paul with leaders of the Black Visions Collective and the Centro de Trabajores, both in the Twin Cities, talking about organizing a 10-day resistance to ramped-up police presence, the attacks on workers, and the corporate bacchanalia leading up to the Super Bowl Sunday. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our show is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. (laughs) 